If you travel to Key West today, it is an area where the tourists outnumber the inhabitants. The inhabitants believe that they may have found paradise, and the tourists come down to try to enjoy it as well. They visit the southernmost point. They stay atop hotels. They travel from bar to saloon along the streets of Key West, where almost anything goes. The world that Ernest Hemingway saw when he first arrived was somewhat like that, but Key West had already had glory days in the past. They were the days when the wreckers would go out and take treasures off of ships that had capsized in the coral reefs, or others had built a fortune in the cigar industry. Those days had passed, Hemingway was there, and he liked the seclusion but he also liked the avant-garde attitude, the attitude that still exists today, and he embraced it. Dr. John Cito has spent his career talking about American literature, and he focuses on Key West in our interview today. Key West and the years when Hemingway was there. There's a woman going crazy on One of the things I uh, always wondered is, how did he land in Key West in the first place? Um, he had never been there until 1928, and it was John Dos Passos who suggested that it might be a place where he'd want to settle. Now, he was in an unsettled point in his life just before that. He had just gone through a divorce with uh, Hadley Richardson, his first wife. Uh, they had a son. John Bumby, when he was an adult, he was known as Jack, and he had divorced her in 1928 and wound up marrying Pauline Pfeiffer, who was uh, a friend of his wife's and a friend of his for a few years. They had vacations together in different places in Paris. He and Pauline get married. Um, they were in Cuba and he took the ferry from Cuba to Key West, um, rented a house there, um, and two years later winds up buying the house on Whitehead Street. And I shouldn't say he bought the house, I should say that Pauline's uncle Gus bought the house for them. And from everything I've been able to figure out, it was in Pauline's name, because subsequently when they divorced, she stayed in that house until 1951, and by 1940, he was gone, only to return to Key West to visit every once in a while. So why he stayed there is, to me, a kind of enigma, uh, unless he arrived in the winter, uh, because you may know this, that Key West is the warmest city in the United States. That is, it never goes below freezing and its temperatures all winter long are on average higher than any city in the United States. If he arrived there in the summer, as I did with my wife twice for vacation, uh, he would have lasted three days and left. Uh, while I was there, it was an exercise in what I would have called pseudo-masochism. I couldn't believe how hot and humid it is. And you would think a lifetime in Philadelphia would have uh, acclimated me to anything like that? No. Uh, Key West was 
horrible from seven o'clock in the morning until midnight. It was so hot and humid in the summer. So I'm going to assume he got there in the winter, uh, fell in love. Um, and I do know this. He and Pauline used to uh, vacation in Wyoming in the summertime. So he was escaping the heat. And this is, this is pre-air conditioned. And they didn't have a pool until they were there for five years. And from what I've been able to ascertain, they had the first pool, the first in-ground pool in all of Key West. And when you visit there, Brian, you look for the penny that's embedded on the side of the pool because evidently he came back from Spain, found out that she had spent an exorbitant amount of money to put in this in-ground pool. And he supposedly, I love these stories, whether they're apocryphal or not, flipped the penny in the air and said, take my last cent. And she took the penny and she had it embedded in the cement along the edge of the pool. Uh, Hemingway has also bought his uh, fishing boat, the Pilar. So he's spending time uh, going back and forth to Bimini, uh, to Cuba. He's uh, big game fishing. Uh, he's insinuated himself into the Sloppy Joe's community in Key West. Um, things seem to be going swimmingly. And in 1936, he meets Martha Gellhorn for the first time. He meets her in Sloppy Joe's bar. Um, and the story goes that she came over and introduced herself to him. Uh, 1937 is when it looks like things started to uh, go south. Um, he winds up going to Spain. He's working as a correspondent there. She's also Martha Gellhorn in Spain. She's working as a correspondent for Collier's Magazine. And the two of them are reporting on the Spanish Civil War. Um, the two of them evidently are um, uh, an alliance um, not just during the day, but nocturnally as well. How's that for a euphemism? Um, and are um, scandalously living together for uh, two years over there. Uh, Pauline gets word of it, sends him a letter that basically says she still wants him back, but if he wants Martha Gellhorn, then uh, that's the way it's going to be. Uh, he comes back, divorces Pauline in I guess 19, 1940, and then marries Martha Gellhorn right after that, and then that's when he publishes uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. So A Farewell to Arms came out right after he and Pauline moved into Key West, um, and some of his most productive work in the 30s, meaning the two greatest short stories that he wrote and maybe um, two of the greatest short stories ever written by an American, The Snows of Kilimanjaro and The Short Happy Life of Francis Macomber, both of which uh, he got the experience for uh, the material for when he went to safari, again on Pauline Uncle Gus's money. Um, Hemingway didn't really have money at that point because all the royalties for The Sun Also Rises, he gave to Hadley Richardson, his first wife, um, when they divorced. 
So she was getting all the royalties from that. Farewell to Arms sold really well when it came out in 1929. Uh, and I forgot what critic it was. Maybe Edmund Wilson declared Hemingway the greatest writer of his generation. Now, this is 1929. He's only 30 years old, and he's already been lauded as the number one writer of his generation. And then royalties started to come in from that. Um, by the 40s, after um, he and um, Martha were married, uh, he was a rich man. The historical, in quotation, quotation marks, Hemingway is much more interesting to some people than Hemingway the writer. Uh, I think I mentioned to you before Hemingway uh, created his own persona by talking about how here was Papa who could uh, uh, out drink, out fight, and out blank any man alive. And he was constantly testing himself, at least with the drinking at Sloppy Joe's in Key West, and testing himself with uh, a variety of different boxing matches. Um, story has it that when he was in Cuba, uh, living at the Finca Vigia, uh, and that was the, uh, the farmhouse, lookout farm outside of Havana that he bought when he was married to Martha Gellhorn, Gellhorn wife number three, that he would go into Havana and uh, put up $100 for anybody who could last three minutes with him in the ring. Um, and rumor has it, it even went up to $250 at one point. That's a lot of money in 1943. And here is Hemingway, 44 years old. Um, I can't imagine that he didn't get concussed a couple of times. Uh, and you know what I'm leaning toward in terms of all of the questions having to do with his uh, dying of suicide in Ketchum, Idaho, back in 1961, were some of the things that happened to him in his youth, playing football when he was in high school, um, involved in a couple of plane crashes. I mean, he was a kept man. Um, she, uh, it was her family's money. Um, she was taking care uh, of his child, child number one, who would come and vacation with his father. So she had Jack, who was maybe an eight or nine-year-old. She had their two children. So she's got three kids who she's watching while in the afternoon after he stopped working, he parked on a bar stool in Sloppy Joe's flirting with Martha Gellhorn. And of course, one of the, uh, the nasty little snarky things about uh, Hemingway is uh, when he publishes A Farewell to Arms, um, uh, excuse me, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which essentially he wrote in the house on Whitehead Street, uh, he winds up dedicating it to Martha Gellhorn. Uh, I think the book came out a month or two after they got married. Um, and there is Pauline, who has been the uh, sacrificial uh, wife and mother. And it's the, uh, the new wife, wife number three, who's the one who's honored with the dedication of um, 
that novel that appeared in 1940. So in those years he was in Key West, um, we've spoken before and you were saying that's a period of time where they, at least there's the least written about Hemingway, even though he was producing so many of the works, it seems like it, it in many ways is overlooked. Well, the key inspiration of Key West seems to be in uh, the novel To Have and Have Not. That came out in uh, 1936, 1937. And it was a great shift in the uh, Hemingway ethos, uh, almost the Hemingway worldview. Uh, Hemingway had been criticized by uh, Ken Magazine, which was a leftist uh, periodical, uh, Granville Hicks, who was uh, an actual communist, um, criticizing Hemingway in the early 30s by saying he doesn't really care about the common man. Uh, when is he going to write something about the plight of the proletariat, to use socialist language? Um, Criticize him because all he was writing about were bullfighters, big game hunting, big game fishing. Hemingway winds up um, writing this novel, To Have and Have Not, in which the protagonist, Harry Morgan, is a down-and-out um, fish boat captain, fishing boat captain. Uh, sport fishing was very, very big in Key West. And um, rich people, mainly men from the Northeast, would come down to Florida in the winter, and they'd hire these charter boats. And uh, Harry Morgan is a, uh, a boat captain, has his own boat. And there's a very uh, sad uh, scene in the novel in which he's had this, this rich, very cavalier guy uh, whom he's uh, taken care of for five days on his fishing boat. And the guy is supposed to meet him on a Saturday and Annie up. Uh, and last plane leaves Key West and this guy is on it and Harry Morgan gets stiffed, uh, doesn't get paid at all. Uh, what does he do? He turns to um, trafficking. Uh, he goes back and forth to Cuba um, with a ship full of immigrants. Uh, it's still prohibition, pre-1933. So he has a, a boat full of contraband alcohol that he's smuggling in. Uh, and things catch up to him. And he winds up having a, a very pathetic kind of death uh, and makes this proclamation, which would you'd never find in an earlier Hemingway book, but, and I'll clean it up for you, Brian. Uh, he says, a man ain't got no blanking chance alone. So all of a sudden, here is the solidarity uh, with the masses that the left was calling for. And Hemingway now makes this whole jump from a separate piece, uh, individuals on their own, into now a whole different, um, um, worldview that I, as I mentioned before, when you said before, well, what was the attraction? Well, um, Key West is Mile Zero. It's a great novel by Thomas Sanchez called Mile Zero. It's the best book I ever read in, in fiction about Key West, and there are hundreds of them that are out there. Um, 
mile zero. It's the end of Route 1. It's the southernmost part of the United States. Um, there's even a uh, mile marker right there um, near Casa Marina uh, that shows um, uh, the southernmost part of the United States, and people take pictures of that all the time. Uh, it was isolated. It was insulated. And so Hemingway has at least a place where he can write in peace, if he so desires, and because he has the money, he can fly out, and up till 1935, anyhow, he could take the train, an overnight train, um, which was a very plush train, to New York City, which was the center of uh, publishing, pardon me, in the United States, probably still is, uh, and Key West satisfied at least his desire to um, have peace and quiet, and at the same time, in uh, 48 hours, he had access to the Big Apple and that other kind of society that he craved. I want to ask you a couple of things. I'll be respectful of your time, but I want to ask you, what is it about Hemingway? I mean, clearly he's been known. What was it that made him recognized pretty much universally as such a great writer? What was it about his writing style that you see and so many people saw in him? You know, there, there, there used to be, Harry's Bar in Paris had a, had a competition every year um, called the Hemingway Imitation Writing Contest. And what they asked for was a really good page of really bad Hemingway. I actually entered it one year and uh, I think I was robbed. I, should, I really should have won. But it's so easy to imitate Hemingway and go wrong. How, how does he make it work? How, how do the rhythms work in his books that uh, you're actually um, uh, sucked in by these um, stark, simple sentences? Um, I think it was his, one of his grandsons who was the one who used the term the iceberg theory. Uh, it's 80% below the surface. So Hemingway is a master of understatement as opposed to somebody like Faulkner who won the Nobel Prize, I think five years before Hemingway did. Uh, he's the master of overstatement. Take a Hemingway story like in another country and put it over and against Faulkner's um, A Rose for Emily and you see such a gap between the two of them stylistically. So the attraction of the Hemingway style is something about how uh, lean and meaty it is. Uh, his, his best friend Fitzgerald. Um, you take F. Scott Fitzgerald, I should say, when I say best friend, they had a very stormy relationship. Uh, and uh, Fitzgerald even called him Papa, although one of the, again, those ironies, Fitzgerald's three years older than Hemingway, so it's Fitzgerald's born in 1896, Hemingway's born in 1899, and yet Fitzgerald had this kind of adulation for uh, macho Papa Hemingway. But you, you look at, at Faulkner's The Great Gatsby. Um, I'll just give you a, um, a quote um, when Gatsby is saying, he knew that when he kissed this girl, and forever wed his 
unutterable vision to her perishable breath, his mind would never romp again like the mind of God. So he kissed her. Now, that simple sentence is something that Hemingway would write. But then what follows is, at his lips touch, she blossomed for him like a flower, and the incarnation was complete. You would never find a sentence like that from Hemingway. You would never find polysyllables thrown together as you would in that one paragraph from Fitzgerald. So how the Hemingway style works, why the Hemingway style works, I'm not really sure, but I can tell you this, if all of his works that I read, at least the, uh, the stuff pre-1940 pulled me in, and uh, I think just a wonderful stylist, a wonderful writer. And, and was it his life that, I mean, it seems like he drew from those experiences to write. Like it seems to me, you know, he, he hunted, so he wrote those at Kilimanjaro. He, he was, you know, doing the boating and he wrote about the rum runner and the, like all those things seem to fit the world he was in writing from his experiences. Cause one of the things I did see in reading about him, and again, his life is intertwined was that he could not have been a great writer had he just stayed around the house and raised the kids and been dad, that, that he had to have all this experience to draw from. Um, he seemed to go out of his way to find stimuli. Um, one experience after another, Ken Burns captured a lot of this, I think, in the uh, three-part PBS special that he did. Um, just the immersion in the Key West counterculture uh, may have been the inspiration in part for To Have and Have Not. Uh, the Sun Also Rises, his first real um, masterpiece. Um, he and um, Pauline were actually in um, Spain together at the bullfight. And he turns that, they were in Pamplona and he turns that into the sun also rises. So that, that question's up in the air. Um, more contemporary writers um, you might think of as well. Um, but we all have opinions about that, Brian. And you were with one part of your being an English major as an undergraduate. So you had your favorites. And I know since you were in my class when we discussed Hemingway, uh, that you really liked the short happy life of Francis McComber, uh, Hemingway novels, they could be put in a soldier's knapsack and he could read them before falling asleep at night and get a lot out of them, at least the top 20%, even if he can't get that far beneath that surface of the iceberg. Well, uh, Dr. Jack Cito, I want to thank you for joining me on the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. It's fun uh, to get to do it again with you. Uh, you're my first repeat guest, so <laughs> that's, it's interesting, but it's, it's enjoyable as well, and I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Brian, and uh, I'm glad that as an MD, you didn't ask me about the code uh, and the code hero, because that would be uh, another 40 minutes. Thank you. There's a woman going